Last time, we looked at the story of the birth and the early childhood of Jesus as recorded in Matthew's Gospel. And we saw that it was not the peaceful nativity scene of Christmas cards. Instead, it is a story of mystery and intrigue and danger and violence. The young woman Mary is inexplicably pregnant before she's married and has never had any relations with a man. An angel visits Joseph in dreams numerous times, giving him guidance and reassurance through one difficult challenge after another. Mysterious men from the East come to worship the baby Jesus, treating him like he is a king. The young family of Joseph Mary and Jesus have to run for their lives, escaping to Egypt. Babies are slaughtered in Bethlehem by King Herod in an evil attempt to kill the baby Jesus. And finally, Joseph quietly resettles his family in the north of Israel, in the district of Galilee, in the town of Nazareth, living in obscurity to keep the government authorities from discovering them. Well, today we are going to be looking at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. We'll be in Matthew chapter 3. If you have your Bible, flip over to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew jumps from the story of Jesus' birth and early childhood right into the beginning of the public ministry of Jesus as an adult. And that's where we pick up in verse 1 of chapter 3. <clears throat> Excuse me. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. The public ministry of Jesus is preceded by the ministry of John the Baptist, who we are introduced to in the text here, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching, it says. Preaching, the word has come to mean a lot of things in our day, but in this particular case, in this context here, the word means to proclaim, to announce, to tell, to herald. He is a herald, and a herald is someone or something that comes before the main person or the main thing, announcing the coming of that main person or main thing, getting us ready for their appearing. In medieval times, for example, the herald would come announcing the coming of the king. The road would be cleared. The people would be given an opportunity to make themselves ready, getting themselves prepared for the king's grand entrance. In modern times, have you ever uh, encountered a car or a small truck going down the freeway toward you with the flashing lights and it says, wide load across the front of it? Well, that car is a herald. It's announcing the coming of something much larger, which we are going to need to prepare ourselves for. John the Baptist was a herald for the coming Messiah, Jesus. His job was to prepare people for the Messiah's coming, to get their attention, to get them ready, to get them thinking about their need for a Messiah. It says, this is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. And this 
prophecy and this he who he's that is being talked about by Matthew here is John the Baptist. It's not Jesus. It says, this is he, John the Baptist, who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. And he quotes Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. And as we've seen before, Matthew is doing again, he lets his readers know that the appearing here of John the Baptist preparing the way for the Messiah is a fulfillment of prophecy. What is John's message? What is he proclaiming? What is he announcing? What is this herald heralding? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. There are two things that John is saying here that I want to draw our attention to. First, John is calling people to repent. He's calling them to make a fundamental change in their life, to turn from their sin and obey God. Second, do you remember what we read last time in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, which quoted the prophecy from Isaiah 7, 14? It said the virgin would conceive and give birth to a son, and they would call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. In Jesus Christ, heaven has come near, as John is saying here to us, John the Baptist is proclaiming that heaven has come. The Messiah is coming. Emmanuel is on his way. Why are people to repent, turning from their sin and toward God? Because Emmanuel is coming. He's on his way. Make yourself ready to receive the coming king. Verse 4 says, John's clothes were made of camel's hair and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. John the Baptist's wardrobe and food catch our attention, and they are supposed to. They're supposed to catch our attention. His clothes, the way John dressed was a characteristic feature of another prophet of God from the wilderness, the prophet Elijah. Elijah's clothes are described in a similar way in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8. The way John dressed was like him wearing a sign when the people saw him dressed that way. They immediately associated him with this great prophet, Elijah. They were all familiar with the story of Elijah and how he dressed. The connection would have been obvious and unmistakable for all of the people in Israel in those days. This was all by design by God because John the Baptist was the Elijah who was predicted to precede the coming of the Messiah. His food here, locusts and wild honey. Now you might be wondering if we're reading that correctly or not. And we are. Locusts, grasshoppers. That's what we're talking about here. Locusts were the superfood of the first century. Believe it or not, locusts are actually listed as a clean food in the Bible. In other words, locusts are kosher. Leviticus 11.21, it says, There are, however, some flying insects that walk on all fours that you may eat, those that have jointed legs for hopping on the ground. Of these you may eat any kind of locust, katydid, cricket, or grasshopper. A holy food. Now you might be wondering what locusts taste like. I have never eaten locusts personally, but I've been told that they... Tastes like chicken. <laughs> Verse 5. 
says, then the, whoops, that's chapter 4, verse 5 of chapter 3. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. People from Jerusalem and the surrounding region were coming out to John the Baptist to listen to him, to be baptized by him in the Jordan River. Jerusalem is 20 miles or more, depending on the route you take and where exactly you land on the Jordan River, but it's at least 20 miles or more to get to the Jordan River from Jerusalem, and it's about a 4,000 feet descent in elevation from Jerusalem down to the river. John must have made quite a stir for people to travel so far to hear him. Remember, they didn't have automobiles then. Most people got to where they needed to go by walking. So imagine walking some 20 miles with an elevation change of 4,000 feet. That is a good hike. Don't forget either that just gets you down to the river. You're going to have to go back up the hill to get home again. So practically speaking, this was a two-day journey for most people. This area where John was most likely baptizing was located just north of the Dead Sea, which is a hot, dry, desert area. I've been there before. It is hot and dry desert area. The site that most tourists go as the site where John was baptizing people is up near the Sea of Galilee, a place where it's green and lush. That's not the place being talked about here in the Gospel of Matthew where John is baptizing people. What caused the people to make such great efforts to come to hear John and be baptized by him? Well, first, the appearance of John the Baptist was considered by many in those days to be the most important event in Israel in over 300 years. There had not been a real prophet in Israel in all that time. There had not been this prophet, and all of a sudden, the appearance of a real prophet of God, John the Baptist, signified that a decisive turning point in the history of Israel was at hand. The time of the Messiah was near. The oppression of Israel by her enemies was drawing to a close. I believe it was a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit drawing people. God was preparing people for the coming of the Messiah. Without the Holy Spirit infusing the preaching of John the Baptist with power, he would have just been another religious lunatic screaming and yelling judgments at the passers-by. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives us understanding of spiritual things. He's the one who convicts us of sin. He's the one who brings life-changing awareness of our need for a Savior in our own life. And when, when you share your faith with someone, it's the Holy Spirit who touches their heart with the truth of God and draws them into a relationship with the Lord. And the same is true, I believe, with John the Baptist. John baptized the people who responded to his preaching as a symbolic act of their acknowledging their need for forgiveness and repenting, turning away from their sin and renewing their dedication to the Lord to obey him. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, it says here, of preparation. People were being made ready for the coming of the Messiah. Their baptism was a 
visible public demonstration of their seriousness of the pledge of repentance that they were making. Now, the baptism that we do as Christians, as followers of Jesus, is not the same. It's a different kind of baptism. It doesn't have the same meaning. There is the element of repentance, of turning away from our old life of sin to a new life following Jesus Christ. But the bigger, more significant, central thing being symbolized in our baptism as a Christian is the new life that we have received through Christ being born again. Our old self has been crucified with Christ. We have been buried with him. And we have been raised to a new life with Christ in his resurrection. Their baptism looked forward to the coming of the Messiah. Our baptism is an acknowledgement of what the Messiah has done in our life. The Messiah has come. He is here and he is changing lives. Seven. But when he saw, John the Baptist saw, many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Gives us a little bit of a taste of John's preaching here. It says, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing. We will talk more about these two groups as we get further into the book of Matthew. But simply put, these were the religious heavyweights of the day. They occupied the seats of power and influence among the Jewish people. And this particular group here generally looked down on the rest of the folks. They're not there to repent of their sins and be baptized by John. They don't think they have any significant sins to be repented of. They're there to judge and to criticize and to mock what John the Baptist is doing. And John the Baptist, he really lets these guys have it when he sees them show up. He calls them a brood of vipers. They're full of pride and self-righteousness. John is obviously not interested in winning these guys over as friends. He tells them to not take any comfort or confidence in the fact that they are Abraham's descendants. Just because a person can trace their family tree back to Abraham doesn't make them right with God, he's saying. What matters is the life that is producing fruit. And by fruit, he is not talking about accomplishments. He's talking about character and the content of a person's heart. I want to point out that in the Bible, the fruit of a person's life is almost always, almost always, talking about our character and the content of our heart, not our accomplishments. Unfortunately, when we hear of a person's fruit, we most often think that we're talking about accomplishments. That's usually not what the Bible is talking about. It's usually talking about our character and the content of our heart. Accomplishments 
usually point to us. I've produced a lot of fruit. God's saying, that's not the kind of fruit I'm looking for. I'm looking for humility, godliness, very different. God is looking. God is looking for people who love him and trust him and want to live their lives in genuine relationship and fellowship with him. We saw when we looked at the family tree of Jesus a couple of weeks ago that he is the Messiah for everyone, no matter what our background is. There is an old familiar saying that you may have heard of that goes like this, God doesn't have any grandchildren. God doesn't have any grandchildren. It means a secondhand relationship with God is not going to get it done. It means that it doesn't matter that your grandmother was a lover of Jesus and devoted her life to following him. It doesn't matter that your mom follows Jesus or your brother or your best friend. What about you? Do you love Jesus and are you following Jesus? That's what matters. These Pharisees were feeling secure about their position with God based on the relationship that their ancestor Abraham had with God. That doesn't get it done. We need to have our own relationship with God. That's what John's calling these guys out about. 11. I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the shaft with unquenchable fire. John the Baptist considers the one coming after him, referring to Jesus, to be so much greater than himself that he's not even worthy to carry his sandals. In Mark's and Luke's Gospels, the expression is recorded as, I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. An expression in our own culture that is similar is to say, I'm not worthy to lick the man's boots. Same idea. John the Baptist and the work that he's doing among the people compared to Jesus and the work that he will do, is like trying to compare a photograph to a landscape of the real, a photograph of the landscape compared to the real thing. The photograph, it's flat, it's lifeless, it's two-dimensional, it just represents the reality, but the real thing, it has depth and space and weather and sounds and light and it pulses with life. And that's the big difference between what John the Baptist was doing and what Jesus will do, too. John says, I baptize you with water for repentance. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. The baptism with water that John is doing, it's a symbolic act of repentance from sin. But Jesus will baptize people with the life-giving Holy Spirit. There will be nothing symbolic at all about what Jesus does. It's going to be the real thing. The full manifestation of what he is doing will begin to take place on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And it has continued ever since, even in our own day. John the Baptist is the last of the Old Covenant, Old Testament prophets of God. 
And his job is to lead people to repent of their sins, preparing them for the arrival of the Messiah. He drenches people in water as a symbolic act of them washing away their old life of sin. Jesus is coming to establish a new covenant. And his mission is to truly remove our sin, to really remove our sin and give us a new life, really give us a new life through his sacrificial death and resurrection. He will drench us with the life-creating Holy Spirit. There's no symbols. It's the real thing when we come to Jesus. Reflecting on John the Baptist's life for a moment, one of the things that strikes me about him is his courage. He's not afraid of what people thought about him. Think about what John wore for clothes. Think about what he ate. Think about what he said. He was obviously not trying to impress anyone. What made John the Baptist such a courageous messenger of the Lord? Well, there's two things that come to mind. First, he was convinced of the truth and importance of the message that he was proclaiming. This is also one of the things that gave Paul such boldness and courage. In Romans 1.16, Paul wrote, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Second, John was a humble person. A truly humble person is not concerned about himself. Humility is self-forgetfulness. John was a courageous messenger because he was a humble messenger. C.S. Lewis said, Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. When we're worried about what people think about us, it usually indicates that we're not humble. We're concerned about our image. And that is usually rooted in pride rather than humility. I pray for us all that we will be convinced of the truth and the importance of the message that we've been given to share, the gospel, the good news about Jesus. I pray, too, that we will be truly humble messengers of the good news about Jesus, thinking less of ourself and more about others and I pray that we'll live for the approval of Jesus of first importance in our life. Amen to that. 13. <clears throat> it says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. So now this is the moment when Jesus enters into our story and he speaks for the first time. This is, this is the main event, beginning. This is why we're in the Gospel of Matthew, right? So here's our guy. He's here now. And as we noted last time, Jesus, he grew up in Nazareth in the district of Galilee. Uh, he's now about 30 years old. 
Luke 3.23 tells us that. And historians believe it's around A.D. 27, for those of you who are, you know, date people. John doesn't understand why Jesus would come to him to be baptized. He has no sin to repent of. John knows that he should be baptized by Jesus rather than the other way around. But Jesus answers saying, let it be so now. It's proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus obeys and fulfills every moral demand of God's will. Jesus is not confessing and repenting from his own sin while being baptized here. He didn't have any sin to repent of. He's proclaiming his identity with us in our weakness and sin. Uh, Roman, not Romans, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, it says, For this reason he, Jesus, had to be made like them, us, fully human in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a spirit from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. The Holy Spirit descending on Jesus signified God's anointing of Jesus for the work that he is going to do. In the Bible, people are anointed with oil as a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Being anointed symbolized that you had been separated out by the Lord for a special purpose and that his favor and his blessing rested on you. In the case of Jesus, he is not anointed with a symbol of the Holy Spirit. He's anointed with the Holy Spirit. Do you remember what John the Baptist said earlier in verse 11? Referring to Jesus, he said, I baptize you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The one who would baptize us with the Holy Spirit is anointed with the Holy Spirit at his baptism. With Jesus... Everything is real rather than symbolic. Everything is real rather than symbolic. Jesus doesn't do things as symbolic acts of spiritual realities. He is the reality. There are no religious ceremonies with Jesus. He's just the thing. This is one of the things that was so disturbing about Jesus for the religious leaders of that time, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they had all of the religious ceremonies and symbolic acts down to a science. And Jesus, he comes along and he says, all the stuff that you've been doing has been pointing to me, preparing you for me, paving the way to me, making reference to me. Now I'm here. Those things are not needed anymore. You have me, the real thing, the fulfillment of all of it. Uh, they didn't like that. They didn't want to give up their symbols. They actually preferred the symbolic over the real. There are still people in our own day 
like that. They prefer the religion and the symbols and the ceremony over the real thing. It's safer, you know. The symbols are safe. The ceremony, the religion, it's safe. Oh, the real Jesus, he's dangerous. Because he'll work your life over. He'll get into you. He'll change you. Paul, referring to the religious symbols and rituals and practices in the Old Testament, wrote in Colossians 2.17, these are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. The Holy Spirit descending on Jesus in the form of a dove is an interesting image. Noah sent a dove out of the ark to look for dry ground after the flood. It was the animal that was used to seek out new life for the people that were in the ark. In the Old Testament, the dove is, a, is, an, is acceptable as a burnt offering as a guilt offering, as an offering for purification, as an offering when healed of a disease. The dove has long been seen as a symbol of purity and gentleness and innocence and peace. And all of these are meaningful images related to Jesus Christ, aren't they? Jesus came to give us new life. He's an acceptable sacrifice for our sin. He embodies purity and gentleness and innocence and peace. God the Father speaks from heaven at this moment and he declares about Jesus, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. What a beautiful expression and proclamation of the Father's special love for his precious son. This day at the Jordan River, at this moment in time, the ministry of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, is inaugurated. And we have all three persons of the Trinity involved. The Son is baptized. The Holy Spirit anoints and empowers. And the Father speaks His approval and blessing over the Son. In closing this morning, the work that John the Baptist did in his day to make people ready for the coming Messiah was to show them that they needed a Savior. They had sinned. They had broken the commandments of God. They were guilty before holy God. They needed forgiveness from God. Now, some thought that they were fine with God because of the genetic badge that they wore. I'm a descendant of Abraham, so I'm fine. And John told them, you're not fine. You're in as much trouble as everyone else. You're in as much need of a Savior as everyone else. In our own day, people are told that they're fine with whatever they want to believe. Be a good person. Live your life consistent with your own personal values. Have faith in yourself. Everything's going to be fine. You're, you're fine. 
I have to tell you the truth. You're not fine. Everything is not okay. You and I need a Savior as much as the people in John's day did. I need a Savior as much as you do. We all need a Savior as much as everyone else does and as much as everyone else ever did. We've all sinned. We've all failed to live up to the holy standards of holy God. We haven't even lived up to our own standards, much less His. But the good news, the very good, amazing, unbelievable news is this, that God Himself has created a rescue plan for us. His own Son, Jesus Christ, has come into our world and lived a holy life for us and died in our place and came back to life so that we can be transformed, made into His likeness and live forever with Him. And the way we take hold of this very good news is by acknowledging that we need a Savior. We need to be forgiven. We can't rescue ourselves. We want Jesus to be our Savior. And then we follow Him with our life. I want to encourage you today, if you've not done that, to do it. To do it. None of us are just fine with our own thing. Our own thing is not getting it. We need him to save us. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we thank you that you sent your own son, Jesus Christ, to save us, to rescue us. I pray that every single one of us have embraced him as our Savior, as our Messiah. And Lord, we're challenged today, too, by John the Baptist and the example that he sets in his courage. Lord, I pray that we would be convinced of the truth and the urgency of the message, the way he was, and Lord, that we would be humble people, concerned about pleasing you and others rather than ourselves. Bless your people today, Lord. Go with us this week. Thank you for your goodness and your peace and your mercy and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.